Good morning. Good to see you. Um, be handy if you had a Bible open there at Habakkuk, but I know it is hard to find, so I've got all the verses I'll be referring to on the screen uh, up behind us. Uh, I'm going to pray and uh, ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Father, thank you for uh, the day you've blessed us with, and we thank you for your word, um, even the obscure bits of the Old Testament that we may not be so familiar with. Um, thank you for uh, the truths they contain, what they have to teach us about uh, your nature uh, and this world and your plans. We pray that you would help us today um, as we think about this idea of justice um, and your forgiveness, um, that we might uh, more deeply appreciate all that you have done for us through Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we all hate it when someone wrongs us, don't we? And we all want justice to be done. We don't like the idea, I certainly hate the idea, that someone might just get away with it. Um, if you've ever had your, your house broken into and had your things stolen, um, you know that feeling of anger and hurt and fear, that terrible sense of violation, that, that sense of being wronged and wanting justice to be done. And they're just possessions. It's often the, the personal betrayals that stay with us the longest. And it's not even just those things that happen to us personally that can make us long for justice. Um, you hear stories about atrocities that take place in the world, often in realms of conflict. Uh, you hear some of the horrors of crimes committed by Russian soldiers in the Ukraine. Think back to things that happened during the Rwandan genocide uh, or even the, the Holocaust. And, and it makes you despair at the state of our world, the things we do to each other. And these are not just confined to history. You only have to pick up a newspaper and, and turn on the news and, and you'll be confronted every day with some of the unspeakable things that people do. Now, we don't have to look very far to see the horrors of our world. And so we do cry out for justice, as we should. We long for a better world. And we might wonder, where is God in all of this? Where is his justice? Now, these are not new questions. It's not a new world that we live in. The prophet Habakkuk lived more than two and a half thousand years ago and his experience, we read, was not very different from our own. He looks around at the world that he lives in and he despairs and he calls out to God. He, In fact, he demands that God do something about it. And in fact, that's where the book begins. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Habakkuk, uh, we read the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Uh, the first verse there tells us that very little about Habakkuk. All we're told is that he is a prophet of God. Um, and just to give you a quick sense of the, the times that he lived in, um, Habakkuk lived around 600 BC, 
uh, in the southern kingdom called uh, Judah. Uh, a few hundred years before Habakkuk's time, the nation of Israel had split into two. Um, there was a, a civil war, for lack of a better term, uh, and the kingdom was split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Um, and the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, uh, was destroyed largely by the Assyrians. And this occurred about 100 years before Habakkuk comes along. So now there's really just the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the remnant of the old nation of Israel. And it is a long way from its former glory days under King David and King Solomon. And the nation itself is not in a good way. It's corrupt, it's weak, uh, and it's under threat from the nations around it. Now this has all come about because God's people had repeatedly defied God. They'd ignored his warnings to repent, to return back to him in obedience, to worship him alone. And now the nation is, is rife with the, the worship of the gods of the nations around them. Um, idol worship is commonplace. And this is reflected too in the way that God's people are dealing with each other. Uh, they're dealing with one another shamefully. There is violence within their communities. There is um, injustice. There is corruption everywhere. And so the book begins with Habakkuk complaining to God about this. He wants God to do something. In fact, he's, he's complaining that God is taking too long to do something about all of this. See there in verse 2, he says, How long, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Habakkuk wants God to do something, to intervene. God doesn't seem to be listening. It's a cry we might very well find on our own lips, that in a world full of violence and injustice, we want God to do something about it. But we should be careful what we wish for, as Habakkuk discovers when God responds to his complaint. Uh, go down to verse 5, and we see God uh, respond to Habakkuk. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. God tells Habakkuk that he is about to do something, that he's going to use this new world superpower of Babylon to come and bring judgment on his own people. He's going to raise up this foreign army to bring the justice that Habakkuk says he wants. Now, Habakkuk, for his part, is not so happy to hear this. He's particularly unhappy with God's choice of tool for the job, the Babylonians. And so we t see Habakkuk tell God that this plan doesn't seem right to him. This, there's something off about this. Have a look at verse 13. He says to God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? He's talking there about the Babylonians. He says, Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? See what he's saying here? He's saying, look, we may be bad. I can't argue that point. But they're even worse than us. 
So he's calling God's justice into question. Habakkuk wonders how it can be right for a holy God, a God whose eyes, he says, are too pure to even look on evil, to use this violent nation as a part of his plan. Now, the Babylonians had a well-earned reputation for brutality, for immorality, and for straight-up cruelty. And God himself acknowledges the kind of people the Babylonians are. Um, he describes him himself variously in this book as ruthless, as arrogant, as opportunistic people, a law unto themselves. And so Habakkuk can't square this. It doesn't seem right to him, fair that God would use the Babylonians to achieve this purpose. And Habakkuk, well, he's pretty sure of himself. Um, he asks God the question, uh, and then he proudly declares at the start of chapter 2 that he's going to sit and wait, wait for God to respond, see what answer God has for him. If Habakkuk was expecting God to apologise for getting it so wrong, to, to thank him for pointing out this inconsistency, um, he is mistaken. And what we find in chapter 2 is God's response to Habakkuk's question. Um, but in fact, what we find in chapter 2 is an address to the nation of Babylon itself. God, in fact, tells Babylon that he's coming in judgment against them for their wickedness. So go to verse 16 of chapter 2. And God here, speaking to the nation of Babylon, says, You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. Words addressed to Babylon, but really they're for Habakkuk's benefit and for the benefit of God's people. God is telling Habakkuk not to call his justice into question, he wants to assure Habakkuk that Babylon, Babylon will receive what they deserve in time. God is assuring Habakkuk that he's not going to ignore Babylon's sin, just as he's not going to ignore the sin of his own people either. So I think the first lesson that we see come out of this book is simply that God is sovereign, that this is his world and that he is in control of it. And so that means God can use even a wicked nation like Babylon as a part of his good plans. This, I think, is an aspect of God's character that we sometimes struggle with, but one we do really need to grapple with and grasp. The greedy betrayal of his own disciple, Judas. The cold-blooded political pragmatism of a man like Pilate. All of these wicked people conspire together to bring about the death of Jesus. And yet we also know that it was all a part of God's good plan, God's great master plan of salvation. And so even through these wicked and hateful motives and actions of so many others, God uses all of that to bring about the greatest good thing in history our salvation, our forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean that those people are without responsibility, without culpability for their own actions. God says he'll hold us each to account. We're each morally responsible for what we do. Judas and Pilate and Israel's leaders will each be judged in turn. 
And so God here assures Habakkuk that Babylon too will one day be judged for their wickedness. He says, but before that happens, he's going to use them to bring about judgment and justice upon his own people. So when we cry out for justice, I think it's important that we recognise just what it is that we're asking for. We're actually asking for God to act against what is wrong, against what is evil, to judge sin. And that's a good thing to want. But we should also consider what that means for us. See, we may want God to deal with other people's sin, but we ought not to expect that God will ignore our own. So we all have a keen sense of justice, but I think we don't always want God to be consistent in how he applies that justice. I think we'd much prefer the idea that God would make some exceptions for us. I think we see this in little children. We see it in adults too, but it's particularly obvious in small children. A three-year-old has a very strong sense of justice. If someone takes their stuff, their food, there is outrage at this great injustice. But very often, if the shoe's on the other foot, well, the other children really need to learn, learn to share their things, don't they? they? There ought to be more of a communal aspect to the food and the toys. Small children would often prefer that justice is a one-way street. They're comfortable with a double standard. Sadly, too often, the grown-ups are as well. And we might prefer it if God's justice was like that, that he held us to a different standard, to the standard we'd like him to hold everybody else to. But God is not inconsistent. If we want God to intervene, to bring his justice, that means we need to be prepared for God to bring his judgment evenly for all. It means we will all be held accountable to God, as we should be. And so here's the dilemma, I think, of God's justice for, for us. How can sinful people find any comfort in the judgment of God? How can people who are deserving of God's judgment find hope from a God whose justice is perfect and blind and without favour? Well, I think that's exactly why God's plan of salvation is so brilliant. Because Jesus solves this very dilemma, the dilemma of God's justice. There's a wonderful passage in the book of Romans that uh, digs into this for us. It goes this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now it's a little bit complicated there but th these verses remind us that we've all sinned we're all deserving of God's judgment. But it also tells us about how God has made it possible for us to be put right with him. When God deals with sin through the death of Jesus, 
It means that God can be just. Sin is dealt with. It's punished. But at the same time, God is the one who becomes the justifier of sinful people. God chooses to absorb the pain and the punishment for our wrongdoing within himself. He does that there on the cross. Sin is punished. Justice is served. And because your sin has been dealt with in that way, you can be justified because of the blood of Jesus. God says he will forgive you. He will declare you right with him, at peace with him. This is how sinful people can find refuge from the just judgment of God. But for now, we continue to live in a broken world, don't we? With all the consequences of sin. Until Jesus returns and makes everything new, we will live in a world that is still full of injustice. So how should we live in it? How can we be God's people in a world that is so broken? Well, quite simply, we're to live by faith. In verse, uh, chapter 4, in verse 2, there's a, there's a little verse tucked away, and it says this. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. Still talking about Babylon here. But the righteous will live by his faith. Tucked into this description of Babylon's arrogance is this little expression which kind of jars with everything else around it, that the righteous will live by faith. I think this is the last lesson for Habakkuk to learn, to trust God. God's timing, God's methods, uh, God's plan can very often seem to us mysterious, unclear, maybe even unfair. But God reassures us that he has a plan, that he is in control, that he is good, that he is just. And so he calls upon us to trust him and to live by faith in him. And I think that's what faith is. Not a blind leap into the unknown, but a trust in the person that we know is trustworthy. I can't remember who said this, but I love the quote, so I'll repeat it anyway. They said this, I don't know why, but I know God who knows why. I don't know why, but I know God who knows why. And there will be times, I think, when that really is all we can do to trust that God knows what he is doing. Now, I don't think that's the same thing as blind trust. I don't particularly like that expression because it's not blind if you know who you're trusting. If you want to be assured of God's love for you, if you want to know that he has a a plan and a good purpose behind all that happens, if you ever find yourself doubting that he loves you, Go back and look at the cross of Jesus. Look again at what he has done for you and for our world. And when you look at this world and you see all of the injustice which is there, or even perhaps when you feel that 
for yourself keenly at different times of your life when you feel like things are not fair, the things aren't right. Perhaps it has to do with a failed relationship or someone else has betrayed you. Perhaps it's a particularly traumatic experience of grief or loss. God says the righteous will live by faith. After all of his posturing, this does seem to be something that Habakkuk gets during the course of the letter. We see a progression in his thinking and how he writes and addresses God. Uh, in the last chapter, chapter 3, we find Habakkuk respond to God again. Um, and from verse 16, we read this. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Habakkuk says he will now wait, wait patiently for God's justice to come. He will trust in God's timing. He's also come to accept that God's justice is right. He says despite the calamity that's about to fall on his people, something he admits he's dreading, despite that, he says he will rejoice in the Lord. He looked to God as his saviour and his joy. Whatever our circumstances, whatever hardships and injustice we face, we can always know joy in God our saviour. And that's a lesson we each need to learn as well. Until Jesus comes back, our world will be far from perfect. There will be injustice. There will be times when we struggle to see how God is in control, how God could be at work through certain events. And that's not to say that we do nothing. God calls upon us to be instruments of justice in the world, to do all that we can to alleviate suffering, injustice, division, to be people who are peacemakers, to be people who bring generosity and his light and love into the lives of others. We've heard today about one way that we can do that through the work of an organisation like Compassion. God's people are to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, to be people of justice, to be people of integrity, not to be a part of the problem. And yet we do that also with an acknowledgement that we can expect injustice to be an ever-present companion in this world. And it's at those times we need to remember what Habakkuk tells us, that God sees, that he knows. He will not let evil triumph. He has set a day when his just judgment will make everything right. And until that day comes, 
We must live by faith. We're going to pray, and Tara's going to lead us in that. Father, thank you for this service and the opportunity that we've had to open your word together. Lord, I thank you for the book of Habakkuk and the lessons that we can take away from the history of your world and your people. Lord, please help us to reflect on what Simon has unpacked and come to a realisation like Habakkuk that you are sovereign and you have a good plan. Lord, help us to lean on your word as a clear picture of the eternal plan you have for our salvation. Thank you for giving us this insight. Thank you for showing us that while we witness the chaos of sin in this world, we know that you are perfectly just and there is no point in which you are not in control. Lord, I pray that we can use what we've heard to more deeply appreciate what you have done for us through the death of Jesus. We are all deserving of your justice and yet you chose to serve that justice by absorbing our punishment into yourself. Lord, please help us this week to go into our lives and reflect the faith that we have in you. Help us to remember your sacrifice and to trust you. Uh, In your son's name, amen. We are now going to sing again, so I'll invite the music team to come up.